Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FV's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So before we get to our data point, and there will only be one data point this week... I wanted to share with listeners the good news that in the coming weeks, we will be hosting two live events. The first will be in Berlin on Friday, October 27th. It'll be at the Hertie School. You can find information on getting tickets already in our show notes. There'll be a link there to a website at podfestberlin.com. And you probably should buy tickets already if you're interested in coming because judging from last time, these tickets tend to go pretty quick. So check it out. We'd love to see you there again if you've already been at a show. If you've not been to a show, please join us. Uh, they tend to be fun, and this time Adam promises that he'll be able to stick around to uh, chat afterwards. So check the show notes to get those tickets. The second show will be happening in Washington, D.C. on Sunday, November 12th. We're still ironing out the details there, so the tickets aren't yet quite available, but they will be soon. I'll let you know where to get them next week. But now to our data point, and that data point is 1 million, which is the number of people who are on pace this year to seek asylum in Europe. The crisis in Europe is getting worse. The number of migrants arriving is the highest it's been for more than six years. Most of the people making the treacherous journey are escaping war and poverty in Syria, Tunisia... Migration in Europe is never long out of the headlines. This month, thousands of people arrived on Italy's shores, and Rome says it's an issue for the whole of Europe. That's along the continent's southern and eastern borders, and those... Asylum applicants tend to be from Africa and parts of the Middle East and South Asia, respectively. But this humanitarian crisis in Europe is happening in parallel with one in the United States. Some three million people have crossed the southern border of the United States. Some portion of those are seeking asylum. And this humanitarian crisis on both continents has now transformed into a political problem. These political crises in Europe and the United States haven't typically been brought into dialogue with each other. But we thought we could try to take a step back and put these migration situations into their common context. We thought we could ask, what is it about the underlying economics that's led to these common migration tensions in the United States and Europe right now. So Adam, does irregular mass migration of this kind, as opposed to regular skilled migration, does, does this kind of mass migration we've seen both in the United States and Europe ultimately help or hurt the domestic economy in those places? I mean, is this just a question of time scale that a temporary economic burden 
will eventually become an economic boon for these places? Yeah, I mean, it's really a, an urgent question to try and think about, think clearly about. I think maybe a key point here is not to substantivize the economy, you know, as a as a thing, or, or insofar as we do, to recognize just how elastic the conception of GDP is, because things which, you know, listeners might think of as costs, like, um, you know, emergency provision of accommodation or extra passport processing or, you know, emergency relief of various kinds. In terms of GDP, they all just add up to GDP. Like, they all just add up to more economic activity. So more people coming in requiring more attention, more processing is all just GDP. Where it gets tricky would be if you were going to say that there was some, you know, upper limit of economic activity and that we were at that limit and we were short of various services. And then you could say, well, having to mobilize those services for migrants of different types meant that they didn't go to other functions. And maybe those other functions would in some way have been more productive. But otherwise, what that is, is just a sort of straight distributional issue. The question is not whether it's good for the economy or not, but whether it's good for particular particular people and certainly in the case of informal truly irregular migration the evidence overwhelmingly is that the people who are worst affected by a big surge in additional irregular migration are other irregular migrants who are in the same pools of informal housing informal work self-employment that the new migrants are and so that's where the impact on wages is most dramatic. It isn't in the formalized sector where for which the, the migrants and particularly the irregular migrants can't compete. Another kind of way of looking at this is to think in terms of what is it the migrants are doing economically? Well, A, they are improving their circumstances almost by definition. That's why they come. So from the point of view of overall welfare, which is another way economists try and measure things being bad or good, right? This is unambiguously a step forward. And the other thing they're doing along the way is spending their accumulated savings. Obviously, the optimal migrant strategy is to expend you know, your, your savings on the way so as to increase your chances of actually getting into the country that you're aiming for. So a lot of that spending happens on the informal migrant entrepot en route to the final destination. But it's very considerable amounts of money. If you think about the, the numbers that you know, people smugglers, the coyotes in the American case, like charge, we're talking thousands of dollars per migrant which are being expended along the way at various points. There was a huge market for a long time. You know, it's macabre, but true, in the inflatable boats along the Turkish border because people wanted to cross to Greece to the closest islands and you needed a boat. And so there was a surge in demand for inflatable boats, for hostel accommodation. So the migrant economy, the migrant process itself, if you take this very super neutral vision of economic activity as just being anything that generates business, in some form or other activity, it, you know, it's it's a mobilizing process. You take people who are in relatively, often dramatically poor circumstances in dysfunctional economies, and they spend all of their accumulated savings to get to somewhere else where they are almost by definition better off and likely to be productive, more improductively employed. And so it's very difficult from an economic point of view, from this kind of point of view, to kind of think about this in any other way other than as a, a net gain overall. I think if you have a more kind of ordered view of what the economy is with a, you know, a series of slots and a series of jobs and a series of appropriate qualifications for those jobs, 
then obviously irregular unplanned mass migrations create disorder they create reshuffling in europe right now we're talking a lot about housing shortages shortages in the in the healthcare in the social services sector in childcare but then you've really got to ask yourself why those shortages are there in the first place right rather than how do migrants cause the shortage that's a kind of limited sum of of you know supply thinking which is characteristic of a certain rather orderly vision of economic activity it's just it's itself a choice if you organize activity like that well then you are going to get shortage phenomena absolutely and that those are problems that are appearing in many places in Europe um notably but that's a that's an effect of the prior decision to to regularize economic activity in a certain way which makes it very difficult for migrants to be rapidly absorbed if you take this more neutral view of economic activity which is why liberals on the whole are just like you know wholeheartedly embrace any kind of migration for whatever reason because broadly speaking it's got to represent it it disencumbers the place the migrants go from where there are almost by definition too many people not enough resources and um so you remove the pressure there and you shift folks to places where in every respect they are more likely to be productive and safe and potentially by some utility standard happier i mean and just from a gd perspective so so i understand i mean there's a positive relationship between just population growth on its own terms and economic growth as a whole right i mean there just just by virtue of demographic growth you're you're in, increasing the economy in some respect and what, i mean and you might say well we don't really care about that because what we're really interested in per capita growth and there you you there you could say definitely if you if you increase the population with a bunch of desperate people who are perhaps relatively speaking relatively less qualified then the per capita level could sink but if you looked at the globe as a whole right that's an effect of boundaries if you looked at the globe as a whole clearly you've raised the overall global gdp per capita by affording that and within europe there's actually been like you know the eu will use a refugee crisis as an excuse to break budget caps and spend more um they did this with ukraine for instance and so it becomes a kind of fiscal stimulus program and certainly adawan operating because you know one thing for clarity's sake like the majority of refugees and migrants in the world are not in rich countries or they end up there but the big pen you know the big holding depot of migrants the countries with the highest percentage of refugee populations are places like pakistan lebanon turkey for a long time and there the situation is more ambiguous because the resources of the society locally are much more strained to start with because they're poorer you can produce some very negative externalities especially if you have ethnic and cultural conflict around really large migrant groups um but even there you get you know south southeast of corner of turkey so saw very very rapid uh, economic growth for a while as a result of the the economy that developed around the refugees and the turks were relatively liberal with regard to allowing the syrians to set up businesses the syrian refugee population was quite highly uh, qualified and so there was really a, a relatively positive feedback loop not not without displacement effects but that's a distributional question more than an overall economic growth question so i wanted to ask about our legal framework around the world for asylum as i mentioned that's 1 million people this year seeking asylum in europe you know mostly from africa and parts of the middle east but also some share of those millions of people entering the united states will also be seeking asylum it got me wondering whether the framework we have for asylum is entirely adapted to our just contemporary 
world of migration and how it works. I mean, I know after all, it was the 1951 Refugee Convention that recognized an individual right to refuge or asylum under certain conditions that was designed in the post-World War II period. But yeah, has the social phenomenon of mass migration, how it's organized and triggered, has that changed in some basic sense since that time? Does this individual human right still make sense in the same way in, in this new social context? The, the history of, of refugees and asylums is really fascinating. It really is a sort of 20th century history. So there was always, there was always the option for states to grant asylum going back to the, in the European context, going back to the period of the religious wars, Protestant states would grant asylum to persecuted Protestant minorities. After the French Revolution, various states granted asylum to, you know, a, a refugee aristocrats who were fleeing from the terror of the French Revolution. But it was a, it was a choice by a state to grant asylum. Britain for a long time was home to, you know, political exiles and refugees from around the world. Karl Marx, Lenin, everyone was there for a while because right? they had a relatively liberal understanding of what a state should grant. And it's in the course of the 20th century that the logic, if you get like, gets flipped on its head. And this is no doubt the what reactionary dislike, which is that what was established was an individual right to asylum. So not the option by a state to grant it, but a sort of natural law understanding that individuals had this right to claim. And that was the original that and, and asylum is best thought of in that sense as an individual category of right. And then even more in the wake of World War II, another set of concepts were elaborated with regard to refugees, which are overlap with asylum seekers, whereas an asylum seeker is, if you like, a kind of homing missile. It's an individual who is looking for a place of refuge and applies to a particular state for that refuge. A refugee is a member of a group of people who've been massively displaced as a result of war or persecution, find themselves, first of all, in a second country where they are temporarily safe, and then, as it were, acquire this status of being a refugee, which grants them a right ultimately to resettlement somewhere else, right? So this is the, the idea of refugee resettlement. So classically, you would have large groups, for instance, of Afghans on the border of Af Afghanistan in Iran or Pakistan, making long-range, long-term applications to be resettled in the United States or Europe, something like that, that kind of model. Whereas the asylum seeker is somebody who has the initiative, the bravery, the resources to somehow get themselves to an airport in Europe and say, here I am, I'm claiming asylum here in your country and I'm, I'm invoking this right. And both of these are clearly legal makeshifts for dealing with situations which are extremely, extremely perilous, dangerous, distressing. And so to kind of expect this system to work seems to me kind of almost oxymoronic. Like what we're trying to do here is deal with crisis. We're trying to deal with disaster. And the basic issue is that there are more and more people in desperate situations and they are more resourced and they have both, you know, in terms of telecommunications and in terms of actual money, more resource. And so, you know, if you think about the big migrant flows, if you reckon a couple of thousand euros or dollars per migrant for the routes, right, and say five or six million refugees from Syria make it to Turkey or Europe, you're talking $10 billion in spending. Like these people are using what's left of their assets in Syria to make this move. So if you've got a combination of more information and more resource, even amongst the most desperate, what you will see is, you know, a heating up of this system, which then has to somehow sit within this legal framework, which was developed for a period 
of uh, relatively lower mobility, lower information. Does that make the system broken? I don't think so. It just makes the world more complicated, more dynamic. It requires responsible governments to invest more in managing the system. And what you know, what conservatives are reluctant to do is actually just face up to their responsibilities to make this system work. Right now, globally, there are um, over 5 million people who are in the formal asylum system. There are 110, 115 million people forcibly displaced around the world. The majority of those are displaced within countries, so within Sudan, within Ethiopia. Then there is short-range displacement, and the biggest crises are Ukraine, Afghanistan, Venezuela. And those people overwhelmingly become asylum seekers or refugees or just displaced migrants in neighboring countries like Colombia or Turkey or Iran, uh, or in the Afghan case, for instance. So the kind of Western, you know, hand-wringing European-American discourse misrepresents the scale of the problem and misrepresents who, in fact, bears the biggest burden of dealing in a decent way with, with this flow. So I think the crucial question is simply, are we willing to put enough money into making a what is inherently messy, inherently problematic, inherently painful process work in as humane a way as possible? And the answer is, I think it's it's broken because we we let it be broken. It's a bit. It's just under maintained. It's under invested in. I mean, one aspect of this legal framework is also a distinction between economic migrants and refugees and asylums. You know, basically victims of, of persecution. And I'm curious whether that distinction itself is entirely coherent or perhaps ever ever was uh, entirely coherent. I mean, at what point does economic suffering become a kind of persecution by one's political circumstances, basically? Well, precisely. I mean, I think it depends on how far. I think this is a categorical, moral, ethical, political sort of choice, right? And there are political frameworks, conceptual frameworks, political theories within which it makes sense to draw very hard and fast lines here and others in which it really, really doesn't. So from a broadly social democratic perspective, as you say, the boundary just becomes blurred if people can't raise their kids in reasonable circumstances or they're threatened by, threatened by epidemics. If they can't work and are decent leaving you would surely want to say something like they have a right to a right, really a right to find a better life somewhere else. And there is therefore an obligation on other places to admit them. If you go from a kind of strictly, you know, kind of almost Aristotelian kind of vision of what the difference between politics and the rest of life is, then you'd have to say, well, there's clearly a huge difference between somebody who's in the DRC and just would really like to have a decent life and somebody who's from Iran and is very concerned about being executed for some tweet or some social media post they made. And those are clearly categorical differences, right? The person in the DRC is just exercising what you might think of as their rights to try and better themselves and have a decent life. And the other person, regardless of their standard of living, is afraid that they will be incarcerated, tortured, and then behead, you know, then hung or shot or whatever for for political crimes. The space in between is then filled by all the situations where it's actually political violence, it's actually political dysfunction, which creates unlivable circumstances. And all of the really big refugee cases around the world are like that, right? Syria and Venezuela, notably, are instances where political dysfunction has led to economic and social crisis, which then causes everyone to 
want to leave. And unsurprisingly, in circumstances like that, when you then face a bureaucrat asking you, why are you here? You take the box saying my home country is in a total mess and I don't feel safe there or something like that. And that will be true even for you know many of the central Central American migrants coming to the US right now who will quite reasonably say, yes, I was totally poor. My life was unsustainable. And there was this ultra violent gang that was threatening to recruit my 12 year old boy. And I just couldn't stay there. And so how do you classify that? Like, what is that? It's not political persecution because the Central American gangs aren't political actors in the conventional sense of the word. But, you know, the the threat of torture and mutilation is no different from the sort of threat and torture and mutilation you might suffer at the hands of a of a political regime. Um, I think this is, to my mind, again, this is inherently messy. And what the crucial thing is to clearly have different pathways, all of which are predictable, large scale, well-funded, and offer folks a half decent chance of being able to realize their, you know, their vision of a better place. And for clearly the person who is at risk of being executed for a political statement needs immediate, immediate help and someone who desperately wants to get out of an unsustainable situation should be given a pathway that is perhaps less urgent, but it depends on the funding stream. But there should be, as it were, you know, an asylum, a refugee resettlement, and clearly a capacious, big, wide channel for regularized economic migration adequately funded so that you have all three operating side by side. And in that case, the boundary disputes between the one, the two, and the three just become much less salient because we're basically saying, yes, we're going to approve, affirm, and support people moving. Um, and we're going to do it in three different ways. We'll take a break right here, but we will be back in a second to continue talking about the economics of asylum. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we are back. So the big topic here in Germany right now has been this question of pull factors. This has been raised by the opposition leader, of the, the, the leader of the CDU party, Friedrich Merz, who has been arguing that Germany's social services and welfare provisions have been responsible for attracting the numbers of refugees and asylum applications that Germany's been having. And I, I, I'm wondering whether pull factors yeah, in receiving countries across Europe and the United States really do make such a significant difference to the flows of, of migration that we're seeing? Or is the economic difference between Europe and the United States on one hand and the countries that migrants are departing from on the other, is that difference just so great as to make those kind of pull factors of the welfare services, et cetera, really just irrelevant? 
Yeah, they're really, this, this is the sort of welfare magnet theory, which has been seriously studied by, you know, a large literature of social science. And there just isn't that much evidence to support this widely held view, which broadly speaking, you know, glues together two populist right wing preoccupations that welfare is bad and migration is problematic. And then you stick the two together and what a, what an excellent sandwich it makes. Like, but there's just really very little evidence for this. But the fundamental problem here is that Germany is clearly very attractive as a country to migrate to, and it has relatively, by no means, excessively generous benefits. But it isn't that doesn't one it doesn't follow that the people migrate because it has generous benefits. It's much more likely that the same you know the, the same thing causes both. In other words, migrants are attracted to successful, rich, prosperous, safe places with other migrants <laughs> and Germany ticks all the boxes. And so that's why people migrate, you know, and so for Germany to say, okay, for a right-wing politician than Germany to say, let's make our countries the selectively less attractive by reducing the welfare provisions we offer is like profoundly, is profoundly perverse. Um, it, it, you know, it should be taken after all. It really, I mean, I don't understand why. And Americans do at various moments because in the end, they do understand themselves as a country of migrants, right? Celebrate the fact that they're attractive to folks from all over the world who would really quite like to live in the country. And and so thinking of it in those terms is much more convincing. Technically speaking, it's quite difficult to do the quantitative social studies on this because there's so many confounding factors. In other words, it is true that Germany has, you know, very generous, relatively generous benefits. It attracts a lot of migrants, but it also has a lot of jobs. And there are a lot of other migrants there. And we know that migrants engage in chain migration. And so once you have a substantial constituency of you know Africans in Frankfurt, then more African migrants will think, oh, that's a great city to be. So you go there. And it isn't the specific locational qualities then at that moment of that particular city. It's it's because other folks like me are there and I can get my hair done. I can, you know, I can eat in restaurants I like food in and I'm just going to meet people. And in the difficult process of finding somewhere to live, there'll be somebody I know who can who can help me out. So you have that kind of chain migration logic operating. So it isn't the particular circumstances in the place in the end. It's this, you know, a, a created community that really drives this along. One should be very skeptical about this claim in short. So one strategy that both the US and Europe have coalesced around to manage this situation is to process asylum applications outside of their respective territories in nearby countries. Yeah, whether in South America or parts of the Middle East or uh, Africa, this would seem to be a kind of de facto end to the legal protections of existing asylum law we were talking about, unless the West can really find ways of, you know, efficiently administering these laws outside their own countries, you know, even as they've kind of been failing to do so at home. And this got me wondering about the economics of just legal administration. I mean, does the legal system of the West simply need more investment so it can efficiently decide asylum cases, as well as just, for example, perhaps more efficiently deport rejected applicants, uh, that kind of thing? I think the simple answer to that is yes. And it's one of the things that's really screamed out at me from doing the research for this session is we just don't spend enough money on this process. And if we did spend enough, that is the rich countries, the EU, the US, then the entire thing would be less stressed. It would cause less crisis. Now, of course, right-wingers will say, and if you have a smoother process, more people will apply. Small price to pay, I think. Small price to pay for a, a high-functioning system that retains its legitimacy and doesn't systematically discredit the state. In the way a system must, 
like the asylum system in the US right now, where the US grants annually a couple of 10,000 cases. It has a backlog of 1.4 million cases in the pipeline. And that's more than total asylum cases that America approved over the 30-year period between the early 1990s and 2021. So it is a the average court case, and they go through the courts in the US, ran over four years. So this is a profoundly discrediting, dysfunctional system. The Europeans complain about backlogs. Both the British and the Germans have big asylum case backlogs, but there are a couple of hundred thousand people in each case for countries which ultimately admit more people under asylum law than the United States does. So there is a major dysfunction right now in the American legal system with regard to the processing of asylum cases. Unsurprising for anyone who's dealt with any kind of part of the American bureaucracy right now and really disastrously underfunded. And and clearly then you're going to end up with the impression of a broken system. The refugee resettlement program in the United States, which is the one which takes people from refugee camps around the world and flies them to the United States and provides them with properly integrated resettlement in the US. In a sense, this should be the jewel in the crown of your your system, right? Because you're taking people in extreme distress who are going through an organized process and then resettling them has a cap, a top cap, which the Biden administration raised to 120,000 from derisory levels under Trump. But they're not able to actually resettle more than about 15 to 20,000 people a year, despite having a legal cap, which will be five or six times higher than that. Why? Because the Trump administration gutted the organization, which actually has to deliver that orderly process of resettlement. So the infighting within state bureaucracies is crucial here. And yes, we need to recognize this, not as some appendage that we would rather not have to deal with, but as an essential function of modern rich states is to smoothly process and deal with these kind of cases. And yeah, we're just choosing not to, and that makes the systems broken. And then you start having these, you know, really kind of outlandish, explicitly racist strategies, which are basically just about trying to hold other people at arm's length. Apparently, I mean, virtually all of the rich countries seem to seem to propose this at various points. The big exponents of this strategy in Europe are the lovely Danes, who from the 1980s onwards have been advocating various types of offshore processing facility. The Australians operated a notoriously brutal regime with Pacific Island neighboring states. One of the tricks of this kind of trade is to shift the processing itself to a third country without actually making provisional funding for that third country to handle the cases effectively so that de facto you just create a kind of logjam and an obstacle. And that was also the way in which the systems put in place by the Trump administration, which were about holding cases in Mexico or in Central America, operated as well. De facto, there was really, they were dead end processes. And to its credit, the Biden administration has wound up those programs since 2021 because they are a, they're a scandal, they're a, they're a blot, you know, on what ought to be regarded as a, yeah, I mean, like I say, this, this should be a crown jewel thing. Like this is a, this is something that rich states ought to, ought to regard as, as a privilege, really, that they are in the position to welcome refugees and desperate people in this way and provide them with, you know, decent reception. And we know how they do in good cases, right? The way in which, for instance, Israel at various station points has welcomed Jewish populations displaced from the Arab world, or the way in which um, Europe, in, including very unlikely places like Poland, extended an extraordinarily you know, moving welcome to Ukrainian refugees in the beginning of the war. That's what this kind of interaction should look like 
routinely for everyone in it, right? And instead, it's this highly selective process, which is clearly coded in terms of, well, you know, the classic discourse in the Ukrainian case was, but they look just like us, (laughs) which appears to be, you know, the, the ultimate source of solidarity here. Oh, goodness, yeah. Well, to end, maybe I'll try to ask something maybe that's more hopeful. And I guess I'm wondering, how can host countries make this process just any smoother politically? I mean, would greater domestic investment reduce the kind of domestic resistance to, to migration in this way? Or should migrants, for example, be allowed to work as soon as possible, even while their applications are are pending for asylum or refugee status? I mean, what other strategies could countries use to just, yeah, make the politics a bit smoother? Yeah, I mean, all of this open-minded, you know, vision about migration that you and I have been laying out here, I think has to be conditioned on removing the scarcity constraint domestically, right? So insofar as you, for a variety of different political reasons, debt breaks, fiscal policy rules, or whatever else, decide that there is going to be a shortage of housing or a shortage of crash places or a shortage of social work, then if you pursue an open door migration policy or a relatively liberal migration policy, you are steering directly into hard win-lose trade-offs like that's you're deliberately creating that situation or at least if not deliberately willfully creating that situation if you want this to work in a way that doesn't cause those kind of conflicts then you do indeed have to look at growth orientated strategies which are about investment in the necessary facilities to absorb new migrants and you we're blessed right now across the advanced economy world in having relatively tight labor markets so unemployment which in the late 70s 1980s was one of the big drivers of xenophobia and racism is less of a relevant concern in the current moment but um social provision housing absolutely are and that's really where there needs to be spending and i kind of you know i did an op-ed about this in the ft at the weekend and kind of you know, did it from first principles almost. Like it's almost, I think, also a kind of strategy of okay, if you're the if you're the governing elite of a liberal country that wants to operate a large scale migration policy, which de facto Germany has, when you look at yourself in the mirror, do you want to have said also, oh yes, and at the same time I restricted housing because that sounded like such a good idea, or did you want to do you want to look at yourself and say, and I was joined up and coherent enough to actually imagine that we probably therefore needed more housing and crash places because that otherwise would look like a you know a ticking bomb and then i was thinking okay so what's the evidence for this degree of trade-off and i was just searching around for stories this morning and there's this place this godforsaken place in uh, forpoman uh, mecklenburg uh, the village of far ufal which became a, a scandal in germany earlier in the year because there was actually a flat-out street demonstration with right-wing na- neo-nazi protesters and fireworks and the whole works over the decision to locate a refugee center for 400 people in a village of 1600. And then you dig into the details and there are all these photos of people who've made lovely German laminated protest signs in which they literally say, we need more houses. Where are the crash places? Where is the doctor for our village? We are not protesting against these people per se, but have you provided us with the infrastructure necessary to accommodate them? And if you have not, what the hell are you doing? Right. How can you increase the population of this small community, which is ill-served with infrastructure by 25 percent, 
without having provided those services. And so I kind of think case closed, right? Now, there may be neo-Nazis who just don't want African people, black people, Muslim migrants. But frankly, you know, they're beyond the pale. Let's not even bother having the conversation with those folks. The conversation has got to be with the people who are able to articulate that demand, which is a completely reasonable demand. And that's where I think politics really needs to act, right? It, it, has to, it has to act and it needs to be seen to be acting to demonstrate that it actually understands the, the real trade-offs which are here, because it's all very well pontificating from a position of, you know, huge privilege about how, you know, societies can absorb large migrant flows, unless you're at the sharp end of the trade-offs which are generated by itself, you know, unnecessary scarcity constraints, you know, you've no idea what it actually feels like to have to live with those kind of constraints, which millions of people do in big migrant, you know, societies like Germany now. So absolutely, I think this is an essential element of a responsible liberal policy or progressive policy on migration is advocacy for, you know, almost per pro rata, per capita for every person that comes X tens of thousands of euros in investment in the following list of key things. Obviously, I'm, you know, talking my book here as a Keynesian liberal. What we're basically saying is we kind of want an automatic stimulus program, which is triggered by migrant flows. And whenever we have a large migrant flow, there is an accommodating, assisting, supporting fiscal program, infrastructure, education spending program that goes with that. And so then you would have like this growth mechanism. And, and that literally is the model for American growth in the 19th and 20th centuries. There is an incredibly strong correlation between foreign investment in the United States during its growth period and migration. That's the dynamic that made the United States what it is. Not just the migrants by themselves, the poor and huddled masses, but the money that went with them and the infrastructure that went with them. So, yeah, it sounds like more of everything. Then, yeah, more investment, more migrants, and then ultimately more economic growth for everyone. We'll see how that experiment works out here in Germany. I mean, as you pointed out in your article in the FT, by the way, yeah, it is also true that most of the kids these days in Germany are from migrant backgrounds. I mean, or, or practically half of them. In the cities, yeah. In the cities, over 60% are kids born with foreign passports or with one parent with a foreign passport. That's 28% for the whole population, over 60 for kids under five in big cities across the whole country, 40% of kids under five. Yeah, I mean, and so what it will mean to be talking about a German in the not so distant future will be just a very different thing. The country's changing in real time. But we should uh, end the conversation here for now. And uh, yeah, tune in back next week for uh, more info on our show in Washington. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura rossbrow Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code Twos at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week.
politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.